When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Sometimes it's the normal, sometimes it's the abnormal, and sometimes it's the paranormal, but it's always beyond reality. Welcome to the program. It's Beyond Reality Radio. What do you think about hoaxes? What do you think about things that people tell you? Maybe they make news, make a lot of news, in fact, and they turn out to be fake or fraudulent or in some way not what they were reported to be. Our guest tonight, Alex Bose, will be talking about uh, hoaxes. He's an expert in the subject, but he's also going to be talking about weird science, scientific theories that are considered fringe right now that have a real chance at becoming mainstream. A lot of the scientific theories that we accept as legitimate, as accepted right now, uh, started that way. And that's another topic we'll be covering tonight with Alex. So we've got a lot of great stuff to talk about. It's going to be very, very interesting. Just taking a quick look ahead at what we've got coming up on the program. Tomorrow night, Jock Doubleday, he's an author and a videographer, will be here to talk about the Bosnian pyramids and his assertion that the earth was terraformed and built by ancients. Friday night, of course, is a best of program. And Monday, Ming Chi, Dr. Ming Chi, in fact, author of a new book called Angels of the of Rainbow Bridge, Life After Transition, will talk about ways to help ease the pain of losing a pet. We've all, well, most of us have, whether it's a goldfish, a turtle, a dog, a cat, horse, whatever it happens to be, we've Most of us have experienced that loss, and it's quite painful. Next Tuesday, Tuesday night, we've got Frank Bennett on. He is an author and a biblical teacher. He'll be talking about his encounter with the Aberdeen Wildman. In fact, that's the name of his new book. He'll also talk about his biblical perspective on the paranormal. So a lot of great programs coming up on Beyond Reality Radio. We're going to get right to it after I remind you to visit our social media and also uh, YouTube. Go to YouTube and search for J.V. Johnson. Please subscribe to the channel. That way you'll uh, be in the know. We've got a lot of uh, back episodes there, some bonus content, plus the show streams live there if you don't have an opportunity to catch it on a local radio station. And then social media, Facebook. Go to uh, Beyond Reality Radio and J.V. Johnson. Like them both. A lot of great stuff there. Keep you updated on what's going on with the show. We'll take a break. When we come back, we will bring in our first, or our guest, our only guest of the evening. We'll bring in Alex Bose. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Don't go away. Look out, Rochester. Scaricon is coming for you. The Northeast's leading fan convention for all things pop culture is celebrating its ninth year at the Rochester Riverside Hotel, October 18th through the 20th. Scaricon brings an amazing group of celebrities, panel discussions, film screenings, great vendors, and amazing parties. It's a weekend of fun from start to finish, and it's family-friendly. For more information, visit Scaricon.com and check us out on Facebook. Use the promo code BRR at checkout to save 20% on your admission. That's Scaricon.com, October 18th through the 20th in Rochester, New York. Alex, welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. Uh, Hi there. Thanks for inviting me on. 
You um, have done a lot of very fascinating work. In fact, I had no idea how fascinating what you have been doing uh, was until I started looking through uh, your websites and started reading. In fact, I, I was so captivated by the um, hoaxes that are on your uh, website that I just was reading and reading through this stuff. And I almost um, I was almost late to the show because it was so <laughs> captivating. But that's some pretty fantastic and very interesting work. Yeah, it's, it's you know, what kind of a lifelong obsession. It began back in the 1990s, like right, right at the birth of the Internet, and I started um, putting weird hoaxes I came across up on the web, and it's one of these things that just kind of ballooned over time into this, uh, this kind of sprawling site uh, with hundreds, thousands of hoaxes that it, I've written about at... at um, one time or another. You know, um, it's fa- it's really interesting stuff, and I can understand how you develop a natural curiosity. But not everybody goes to the extent that you have to seek out these stories and publish them in one form or another, whether it's in a book form or on the web. What was the real catalyst for you to take such an interest in all of this? Um, oh, okay. yeah, well, uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a knowledge junkie. For a start, so I'm, you know, some people they're like pack rats for information, and I, I'm like that. And once I lock onto a topic, I just can't really help myself. I, I research it and want to know everything about it. Um, as you kind of indicated before, I, I, I wear kind of two hats: the hoaxes and the weird science stuff. Right, and they may sound different to a lot of people, but to me, they're, they're kind of intimately joined, and it was when I was, at, I was at graduate school out at UC San Diego in the 90s and studying the history of science, uh, getting a graduate degree in that, and that's actually when I developed my interest in hoaxes, because from my perspective, uh, and it's a kind of an odd connection perhaps, but the history of science is, is about the history of knowledge, and so it occurred to me at a certain point, well, you know, in a different way to look at the history of knowledge is what if you looked at it from the history of, like, fake knowledge or, or lies? Because knowledge is all about, you know, trying to convince people what the truth is. And so I thought, you know, it's an interesting take on the history of knowledge to look at the history of hoaxes. And so that that's kind of how I developed the initial interest in it, and, and and also, you know, kind of less academically. I'm just fascinated by these uh, these crazy stories. Uh, I guess it's uh, part of my, um, you know, sense of humor. Uh, so I was at grad school, and I was supposed to be studying very serious things, and I came across these absurd hoaxes, and something about it just really... Uh, resonated with me, and so, in, in fact, to the point where, instead of pursuing a career in academics, I I basically started this uh, online museum of hoaxes, and you know uh, pursued that kind of as a, as a very strange career. Well, it doesn't surprise me at all because um, I find the same fascination. I didn't realize how fascinating. It was, or how much interest I had in the topic until I started reading through your website. Now, you are the quote-unquote curator of the Museum of Hoaxes, but the Museum of Hoaxes is a virtual museum, right? 
Yeah, although if you if you visit the site, you may um, get the impression that that it is a, a an actual brick and mortar museum, and it's it's kind of again, I guess my slightly odd sense of humor. As I developed the site over the years, it occurred to me that it would be funny if I pretended that it was, you know, the Museum of Hoaxes was an actual museum. So, you know, this uh, this site reporting about hoaxes was itself a hoax. <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of a meta hoax, if, if you will. And I, I so, for instance, on my um, my website, I think I give people directions on how to find the museum in San Diego, and I, I say, you know, you should drive along the I-5, drive north, and look for the giant floating jackalope by the side of the highway. <laughs> and I obviously, you know, nobody has found the museum yet because there is no giant floating jackalope off the I-5. <laughs> Um, I, I do very often get people emailing me, asking me how they can get to the museum, like teachers organizing field trips for their kids <laughs> and, you know, tourists from Europe visiting San Diego. I, I feel a little guilty, but uh, I, I always, I, you know, I, I never actually have sent somebody off on a wild goose chase to find the museum. I, I let them know at a certain point. But you all you had um, what was it? The, oh, is AAA and their travel guide actually uh, kind of fell for the hoax? Yeah, they, uh, <laughs> I I think also I've had the Wall Street Journal reported as a weird as a true museum, and USA Today at one point said the same thing. But yeah, AAA Travel Magazine put together a list of the the twenty weirdest uh, museums in the United States worth visiting if you're going to do a road trip. And sure enough, the Museum of Hoaxes made the list at, at number twenty. So, um, well, you'd have to put a lot, a lot of miles on your AAA registered vehicle uh, yeah. to if you're in search of the uh, of the Museum of Hoaxes. Um, yeah. You know, speaking of hoaxes, I happen to uh, live in Cooperstown, New York, and in Cooperstown, New York, there's a real museum called the Farmer's Museum, and when you walk into the Farmer's Museum, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this or not. I've when, been there, yeah. Oh, you have. So when you walk yep. into the Farmer's Museum, the first thing you see is the Cardiff Giant, one of one of the great hoaxes of the late 19th century. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they the nickname for the Cardiff Giant was Old Hoaxy at, at yes, a certain that's point. Right, that's and right. it, it's, uh, uh, if people don't know the story, it was, I think, around 1860s after the Civil War, and uh, a farmer in upstate New York digs up this giant uh, stone man from out of the grounds, and uh, people are just amazed by this. He, he puts it on display, you know, he's making tons of money because everybody from all over the state and beyond is coming to see this amazing thing. And it turned out uh, that it was all this um, basically like a practical joke to make fun of, uh, it, it was an atheist who dreamed it up, and he wanted to make fun of the religious people he thought were going to fall for this thing because it mentions somewhere in the Bible about stone you know, well, a race of giants. Ground. Yeah. A race of giants, the Nephilim yeah. um, you know, that is definitely talked about in the Bible. And we've talked about that uh, on this program. Um, and that, that actual uh, stone figure is lying in repose <laughs> right at the entrance of the farmer's museum. And I actually really enjoy going there and 
and uh, and visiting that particular exhibit. Um, it's funny how you look back, and when I look at the Cardiff Giant, I think it's a really good example. Uh, I don't think I would have been fooled, but back you know, in the in the late nineteenth century, even into the twentieth century, I think people were a little more naive. They didn't they weren't as worldly, so they were probably more susceptible to this stuff. Well, often you know, the the way it works with hoaxes is that um in within our own kind of environment, things that we're used to, that we're familiar with, um, it's hard to fool people uh, with something like that. But but when it's something they're not quite familiar with, it's something slightly novel, then their their defenses are down in a way, and so it's much easier to to slip information past them. And one of the phenomenon that comes to mind is when um, email first started, you know, when email first became popular in the late 1990s, early 21st century, and, you know, people would get these crazy emails, like, nowadays, I think most people might recognize them as a hoax, like, emails saying Microsoft is going to buy the Catholic Church, (laughs) and these would get forwarded around everywhere, and because it was a slightly new medium, people didn't really... Uh, weren't familiar enough with it to to be able to judge, you know, is this something I should trust, is this not? And so email hoaxes at that time, you know, spread far more than, I mean, they still obviously spread today, but it was just like the Wild West on email back, at, you know, when it first appeared. The days when, uh, and it's those, these actually still happen, but when you get emails from the prince of, you know, Nairobi who wants to transfer $18 million and asks for your help and he'll give you a cut, um, those are a little more than hoaxes. Those are scams, I would say. Yeah, and, you know, they, people can be uh, financially ruined by those. And often, the, you know, those fall on, uh, take, take advantage of the elderly and uh, people, you know, who uh, may not slightly more uh you know gullible yeah, so yeah. i mean uh they 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 can be very malicious yeah, yeah. um i on the museum of hoaxes i i tended to focus on uh kind of more lighthearted hoaxes in right. a way um so so less the scams i i also you know i kind of had an interest in folklore and that's part of where my interest was uh in developing the site came from so uh, less the really nasty stuff and more the stuff I kind of thought was funny, humorous. Mm-hmm. There was a whole industry, uh, and the Cardiff Giant was part of that. P.T. Barnum was a big part of it, uh, that focused on what I guess now we would consider to be hoaxes. Uh, but there was a whole industry that was um, engaged in this. Uh, oh, in the 19th century, absolutely. And, and in fact, I remember the, the very first hoax that ever really caught my attention back when I was in grad school was uh, the Great Moon Hoax of 1835, which was this uh, a newspaper hoax that appeared saying that life had been discovered on the moon by the great astronomer Sir John Herschel, who supposedly had built this fantastic new telescope, and it was a special feature that ran over about seven days, and each day it was reporting all the amazing things that Sir John Herschel had discovered, and it kind of upped the ante each day, so like, second day there was like biped beavers that 
had been discovered, and then there were moon bats and moon men who flew around, and it just got more and more fantastic. But again, it was a a new medium, and uh, you know, people couldn't just call up Sir John Herschel and ask because telephones right. didn't exist yet. Uh, so that hoax kind of um, was responsible for launching the the entire spread of kind of some sensationalist journalism because papers at the time realized like oh my god you, you know the the guys who came up with this hoax were making tons of money and we can do the same thing and so throughout the 19th century you just had this kind of spread uh, you know what we today call fake news mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um it's not a new phenomenon at all. It was, if anything, even worse. Orson Welles, obviously well-known radio man initially, and then uh, writer, director of film, actor as well, uh, panicked much of the United States one night. It was a Halloween night, and when he presented or uh, the War of the Worlds as a radio play, and uh, that is a night in radio history. It's a night in American folklore history. Was that a hoax? Uh, there, there, there's a lot of controversy about that. Um, some people say that, you know, it was a radio play. It was clearly announced that it was a play. Uh, so, no, that in that sense, it, it couldn't be a hoax. But the other argument, which I subscribe more to, is that there were a lot of elements of deliberate deception in it, uh, they made the radio play appear like they were um, news, like news broadcasts being in, interrupting uh, right. the program, and then they they imitated uh, FDR's uh, Roosevelt's voice. Uh, so, to most people, people had never again. It's you know a new medium, a new kind of. Um, uh, technique that that Orson Welles was using, and people were legitimately confused. And I, I think he had to know that uh, that was going to deceive people. Now, I don't think he had any idea that it was going to be as successful as it turned out to be. But I, I do think that he intended to fool people. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I was looking through many of the other uh, hoaxes that you have listed on the website, hoaxes.org, and some of them stood out to me as pretty interesting. And some, of, I'm, I'm assuming that some of the entries you have there are, um, I guess, maybe debatable as to whether or not they're hoaxes or not. Some people might fall on the hoax side, others on the non-hoax side. One of those uh, is the uh, Shroud of Turin. I noticed that there. Uh, do you consider that to be a hoax? Uh, yeah. Well, again, yeah. A lot, a lot of controversy, and I, I do because I think the the simplest explanation for it is that it was a a medieval um, fake, and that's you know that's what the church back in the Middle Ages decided, and they were kind of closer to it than we were. Uh, so to to me, that is the most logical explanation. But um, yeah, I, I know there's. Uh, one of the problems is that it's really hard to examine this thing right. because the church doesn't really make it available. So that that deepens the mystery quite a bit. And you know, people go back and forth uh, saying, "Well, how did this image get on on the shroud?" Um, but I, I, 
from my experience with uh, studying hoaxes, is you should never underestimate the ability of a hoaxer to come up with a fake. So when people say, oh, there was no way somebody could do it, I, I always think, well, you're underestimating the, the ingenuity of the hoaxers, and I'm, I'm pretty sure there was a way to, to artificially manufacture this thing. But again, that's just my, you know, my opinion, and, and that's actually not a hoax that I've ever studied in, in great depth, so right. I can't really present myself as an expert on that. There are a couple other in that list there. There's, and, and I encourage anybody to go to the website, hoaxes.org, and it's, it's, uh, these hoaxes are arranged chronologically on the website because it's really fascinating stuff. But a few of them popped out because they're topics that we have covered on this program, like uh, the alien autopsy video. When did that come out? I'm trying to remember uh, because for a while it created quite a firestorm, and then you know, as you watch this thing uh, a couple times, you started to notice pretty clearly how fake it was oh uh, yeah i'm you know i yeah off the top of my head i think that that was the 1990s wasn't so. it that yeah. um it was the the uh special on fox tv wasn't it that heavily advertised at, at the time um i think so i think uh and it's one of those things that to me hasn't aged very well <laughs> like again at at the time when people were looking at this video uh they were thinking, well, maybe, but the the more removed we get in time, uh, the more, at least to me, fake or like obviously fake that that video starts to look with you know the the way the camera would zoom would uh, get kind of um, blurry each yeah. time they got too close to the right, body right. and uh, you know details like that. Well, I think when that came out, it was pre-reality uh, TV craze. And I think that they, you know, kind of tried to use a reality TV approach before it really existed. So they didn't really have a lot of experience in it, which is why it looks dated. Um, another one that, that stood out to me is the, uh, you know, Mumler's spirit photography. Again, we all know now that they, they were hoaxes. But back in, uh, in the uh, Victorian area, these things were, were sought after. Oh yeah, and uh, again, it's um, you're talking about a new medium for people. So photography is brand new. They they don't have the same kind of um, critical ability to you know just to be familiar with it and know what is and isn't possible with the medium. So they implicitly kind of trusted photographs. And when you look at the context of the time, it was right after the Civil War, and people were you know were truly grieving for all their their lost loved ones and so this guy comes along and uh has these photographs where you know you have your uh dearly departed kind of hovering in the background and obviously i you know i i think he was taking advantage of people that's pretty clear now sure. nowadays we know that's not that hard to do with photographs but at the time um you know it, it really uh fooled a lot of people what about the Blair Witch Project? That kind of falls into the same category for me as the Orson Welles production. It was it was an intentional um, piece of entertainment uh, marketed in a way that made some people think, "Hey, this this is actual uh, this is actual documentary style or something." Um, do you consider the Blair Witch Project to be a hoax? Uh, I well, I think they they definitely. Um Intent, yeah, I would think they intended it to be, and well, especially the website. It was the website that kind of caught people's attention because, right. again, this was 
the internet was fairly new to people, and they had uh, this whole kind of documentary style thing on on the internet that yeah. made it you think that um, you know, wow, there's so many details here. This uh, this has to be true. And uh, before then, movies hadn't really figured out like movie studios how to use the internet to to market their movies and so this was a brand new thing again this this idea of of really leveraging making content go viral on the internet and they i you know i credit them with uh being the first to do that and to figure out really how to catch people's attention and of course the way you do it is you you know you kind of trick them or uh deceive them into thinking that this thing is real and it was it was a pretty effective tool. Uh, it made the film far more engaging when you actually went to see it. Otherwise, I think it probably would have been a bit boring. But it, it turns out the way it was marketed and the way it was presented, it makes it one of my favorite horror films. And I'm a real horror fan. Um, the other thing that uh, is pretty interesting is the change in the presentation of what we would consider to be hoaxes now that we are in a digital slash social media age. And one that I find uh, particularly curious is the uh, picture of the Angolan witch spider. And I bring this one up because our chat room has been recently talking about spiders and they get all worked up when you start talking about spiders. And that particular picture I actually saw on Facebook before, you know, it was debunked. Um, and I, you know, I, I've assumed it was fake at the time, but it's the picture of a giant spider on the side of a house, right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I know the one you're talking about. Right. Yeah. And then, okay. it, and it was obviously uh, a fake. Yeah, and again, something easy to do in Photoshop. You know, you just, it probably takes somebody all of five minutes to create an image like that. Um, but, uh, you know, before people were really as familiar with uh, fake images as I, I think people are becoming more cynical about, yeah. you know, what you can do with photography nowadays. Um, it seems to me that these kind of viral fake images uh, spread a lot more widely uh, back in the early days of the Internet. What you get a lot today, I see, are miscaption photos where the, the image itself will be real, but people will just put a fake caption on it to, to give it a different kind of spin um, and not so much the, the kind of actually digitally altered stuff that uh, like the Angolan spider. <laughs> some, of them, some of them make you chuckle and I and I I can completely appreciate what you said about trying to find the lighter side of these things because when you look at some of this stuff uh, and, and you realize that people actually fell for much of it, and again, it, different time, different perspective in many of these cases, um, it makes it a bit humorous. Yeah, yeah, and, and to me, that the, the humor, it was a lot of the motivation for pursuing. I, I just kind of loved it and love researching this stuff because it is funny. Uh, we're going to go to break here in just a couple minutes, but before we do, tell us about the title, Psychedelic Apes. What's this about? Okay, so this is, you know, kind of 180-degree change from all, all the hoaxes stuff. This is all stuff that is uh, absolutely being intended to be taken seriously, and the book is about all the, the kind of crazy uh, crazy ideas, the, the um unorthodox theories that kind of circulate at the fringes of science. And scientists tend to hate these things, uh, and yet they, they keep appearing. And psychedelic apes 
refers to one theory that emerged in the 1990s trying to explain the origin of human intelligence, uh, suggesting that perhaps hallucinogenic drugs was the result. Maybe two million years ago, our ancestors started sampling uh, hallucinogenic mushrooms, and this was basically responsible for what caused the enormous brain growth that uh, started happening two million years ago and resulted in today us having basically one of the largest brains, well, the largest for our body mass in the animal kingdom. So the, the book is full of these, these kind of crazy, crazy ideas, all of them intended to be taken seriously. And basically the book tries to explore, you know, what, what kind of argument could be made for these. Uh, you know, could there be an actual case for these, these crazy arguments that scientists occasionally come out with? Um, Alex, the title, Psychedelic Apes, you told us why or what it was about. Why did you decide to write this one? Uh, okay, so the um, story actually is it's a, there, there's a genre of science, science books, uh, sometimes called big history. Uh, they're, they're the type of science books that um, kind of give these grand sweeping narratives of the history of the cosmos. Uh, Bill Bryson has written a very popular one, which was called A Short History of Nearly Everything. Um, and they typically start with the Big Bang, and they'll take you through the entire history of the cosmos, how the galaxies formed, and life formed on Earth, and then right up to the origin of man. And so you get this kind of sweeping synthesis of the scientific answers to all the big questions uh, in the universe. Um, about four or five years ago, I, I was actually reading Bill Bryson's book and thinking about this whole kind of genre in science, and, and kind of this odd idea occurred to me that it would be funny and slightly subversive if you took that genre of kind of this um, scientific history of the cosmos, but you told it from the point of view of all the alternative theories that challenge the mainstream opinion in science. Uh, so you would essentially turn that whole genre upside down on its head. So instead of kind of showing how science has all these nice, tidy answers to all these big mysteries in the universe, you would essentially complicate everything and try to constantly raise questions and, and ask constantly, is the universe perhaps really far stranger than, uh, you know, present-day science dares to imagine? And I just got, when, when that idea came to me, uh, I couldn't get it out of my head, and so essentially this book is the the result of that. So it's um, an alternative history of the cosmos, in a way. It's kind of my subversive response to Bill Bryson's book. Um, and so instead of starting out with the Big Bang, the first question I ask in the book is, you know, what if the Big Bang never happened? And then, you know, kind of keep exploring these uh, alternative theories uh, throughout the book, progressing from 
the beginning or not beginning of the universe right up through the dawn of civilization and almost up but not quite to the present day. So through the origin of life, through the rise of mankind and always presenting the alternative takes, the, the kind of theories that tend to get swept under the rug and bringing all these out and asking, you know, what, what if there's a case to be made for all these strange theories that have uh, been brought up over the years. Is it fair to say that a lot of today's accepted uh, theories or premises started out as strange or fringe? Uh, started out as what, sorry? Strange or fringe? Oh, yeah. And, well, yeah, and again, that's part of my motivation for the book, because having studied history of science in graduate school at a, at a graduate level, you know, one of the really striking things about the history of science is that almost all the major theories in science did start out as fringe, unorthodox theories. You can uh, go all the way back to Copernicus in the 16th century, and, you know, he kind of announced, hey, everybody, I think the Earth is in motion. It's spinning around the sun. And to people at the time, this was absolutely nuts. And not only was it nuts, he had no real good evidence that he could, uh, you know, bring at the time to prove this thing. Uh, same thing with the, uh, you know, theory of evolution. Before, uh, you can look at before Charles Darwin kind of came out with all this evidence, for decades before that, people were kind of muttering these these strange ideas saying, you know, hey, maybe species aren't static. Maybe given enough time, you know, a population of mice could turn into humans. And people in the 19th century and stuff hearing this were like, no, that's, how could that possibly happen? Um, also, uh, plate tectonics, the theory of continental drift, that was laughed, laughed at before it eventually was vindicated. So again and again, this happens in science, so Alex, uh, before we get back into discussing uh, the book itself, um, you're also a bit of an expert on uh, April Fools, which kind of makes sense given everything else we've been talking about here. Yeah, I, I, uh, I like to call myself, the, you know, the world's greatest expert on April Fool's Day because I think, in fact, I am the only <laughs> one. It's it's really a kind of esoteric subject. Uh, that most historians would never take seriously, but at one point I decided, okay, I'm going to, you know, really dig down and study the history of, of April Fool's Day. So uh, on my site, uh, the Museum of Hoaxes, hoaxes.org, I, I have what I call the April Fool, Fool's Day archive, which literally almost every year from 1500, I, I tried to find all the April Fool's Day hoaxes and create this massive archive. I, I view it as a folklore archive, um, just, uh, you know, how April Fool's Day changed over, over the years. Where did, what's the origin of pranking on the 1st of April? Uh, well, that, that's uh, slightly complicated, but... Um, <laughs> Is it a short version? <laughs> It, it goes, but basically what happened is that uh, there's an ancient tradition of celebrating folly. 
And this goes back to pagan times, and folly was considered kind of one of the the forces in nature that you had to to respect because it was you know folly was basically the same as chaos, and you, you had to recognize that um, you know chaotic things happen, and that folly have it, but it could be a force either for creative change or destruction. So anyway, this goes way back into history. You have all kinds of ancient festivals designed to celebrate folly. Um, in the Middle Ages, this continues, except you know, Christian Christianity did, didn't really have this same emphasis on folly. To them, it seemed, uh, especially the church authorities, it seemed a bit too much like worshiping the devil, and yet they couldn't really suppress this this tradition of uh, festivals focused around folly. Um, and so you had these, these uh, holidays kind of springing up throughout the Middle Ages. Finally, they kind of put their foot down to try to suppress it, and then what happens in around the 16th century, uh, it kind of springs up again, but this time it takes a secular form. So all the kind of religious over-trappings has been stripped from it, and it becomes just this uh, very much resembling the older kind of festivals of folly, but now in a purely secular form, the church is fine with that, and that's kind of where we, um, you know, continue to get April Fool's Day to this day. So obviously something about it resonates with people because it's such an ancient holiday. What, um, in, in your archiving of great April Fool's pranks, what stands out as one of the top? Oh, well, that, yeah, that's easy because it, it's almost unanimous. Everyone feels that the Swiss spaghetti harvest hoax of 1957 <laughs> uh, done by the BBC was probably... The, the number one hoax and uh, what what happened there some of the context is that um, you know that the, the British diet isn't too adventurous uh, they they like their kind of beef and potatoes uh, but in the 1950s spaghetti was kind of being introduced to the British diet but most people it, it was viewed as slightly a foreign food. Um, they didn't quite know where it came from. So the BBC, 1957, April 1st, they did this broadcast at the, the end of the news news show announcing that, uh, telling people that because of this uh, mild winter, uh, Switzerland was enjoying a bumper spaghetti crop. And they showed all these Swiss peasants pulling spaghetti down from trees. And because, like I said, to most people in England, they hadn't really thought where spaghetti came from, so it just fooled hundreds of thousands of people. And plus, everybody watched the BBC. There was only like two stations, so everybody was watching it. So it had this huge cultural impact, and the BBC was just flooded with calls. You know, people wanting to know, oh my God, how can I grow my own spaghetti tree? And the BBC operators had this great reply that you should put a sprig of spaghetti in a tin of tomato sauce and hope for the best. (laughs) (laughs) That is amazing, actually. That's quite funny. And I hadn't heard of that before tonight. So that's fascinating. Yeah, and that, that all really there's there's no you know um, contest with that because it did have such a huge impact and nothing has ever really rivaled that since. 
the book. Again, we're talking about psychedelic apes where you explore a lot of fringe ideas and topics. Let's talk about a few of those. Um, I don't know if you have a favorite that you want to start with, or we can just go through a few of them that are, that you feature. Uh, sure. You, yeah, go. If any, you know, because um, I actually like them all. So yeah. I could talk about any of them. Um, it, it's like trying to have to choose between your children to have to pick one. What about uh, the idea um, um, of germs coming from space? Okay, yeah, this was uh, uh, um, the idea of Fred Hoyle, who um, is a very, very interesting character. He was one of the great, some would say, the greatest astrophysicist, perhaps, of the 20th century, an absolute genius. He's the guy who figured out how... Uh, carbon and most of the other elements are manufactured in the sun, which um, is definitely a Nobel Prize-worthy uh, discovery. It, it, that experiment did get the Nobel Prize, but because Fred Hoyle was such a weird, eccentric crackpot, or they felt he was, they didn't give it to him. It's kind of one of the lingering scandals of um, uh, the Nobel Prize uh but anyway, uh, so I, Fred Hoyle comes up with this idea in the 1970s that perhaps uh, life originated in space instead of down here on Earth. Um, and the reason he came up with this idea was because he was studying interstellar dust, and he realized that interstellar dust actually contains organic compounds, which are the building blocks of life. And this is an absolutely true discovery. So he kind of put two and two together and said, okay, if there's organic compounds up there in interstellar dust, maybe that's where life originated. And he had came up with a theory that, you know, maybe what happened is that as this dust coalesced into comets and the comets circled the sun, uh, you know, that kind of warmed the comets. And this this could have been going on for billions of years, so you had lots of time in which life could have emerged. But then once you do get life in the comics, then, you know, the the first microbes could have floated throughout space, and perhaps some of them drifted down onto the Earth, and that's how life originated on Earth. And that, that so far is like, you know, most scientists are like, okay, that's there's nothing we object too much about that. But then Hoyle just kind of continued the argument, and he said, you know, think about it. If four billion years ago the Earth was seeded by microbes from space, which he had a plausible argument for that, you know, he asked why, why would it stop? You know, why would it have only happened once? And so he kind of pushed the whole argument, and he said, why wouldn't it just continue to happen, in which case, uh, these periodic uh, infusions of microbes from space could have theoretically influenced the whole course of evolution. And, you know, he then, just logical progression, he takes it right up to the present, and he says, why wouldn't they, in fact, continue to, you know, in the present day, how do we know that microbes aren't floating down from space? Because if they did it once, then logically, you know, they it's not like they would have all just disappeared from space. So he theorized maybe some of the great epidemics, the Black Death of the 14th century, uh, the flu epidemic that broke out after World War I, maybe 
These were actually caused by germs coming from outer space. Maybe even when you get a cold, maybe that's caused by, you know, space microbes. And this, I mean, he, it's hard to kind of uh, dismiss his argument entirely, mm-hmm. although it just absolutely outraged. Bio- I mean, biologists heard this, and they just, you know, hit the roof. And really, <laughs> this is one of the reasons why he was denied the Nobel Prize, because he was coming out with what scientists felt were outrageous ideas like this. Why does it seem that in some occasions that a group of people, scientists in this case, who are uh, dedicated to finding the truth seem to be so close-minded at times? I think it's human psychology that uh, it's an unfortunate group psychology. Whenever a group forms, uh, it kind of adopts a doctrine, you know, doctrines, and this is how it organizes itself. And so if somebody comes along and challenges those doctrines, it seems to threaten the entire group itself. And so, you know, it's unfortunate how this happens, but it's, you, you see it beyond science. Obviously, you know, you think of, like, the Catholic Church over the years and would be burning heretics and... Uh, people they thought were witches or, or anybody. that So it's a recurring phenomenon throughout uh, human history. So it's not just science, but perhaps... Um, yeah, but scientists are are dedicated to finding right. the truth. I don't. I wouldn't say religions are dedicated to finding the truth. They're dedicated to their to their doctrine. Um, yeah, and what what happens in science is that there's a lot of big egos in science, and the way you win status in science ultimately is by coming up with a great theory. I mean, we, we don't tend to, in popular culture, we, we don't remember the guy, the scientists who were great at data collection. We remember Charles Darwin, who came right. out with the theory of evolution, or, uh, you know, Copernicus, the heliocentric theory. Having a great theory is how you make your name in science. And so people, uh, the scientists who have developed theories, become very, very protective of their theories. And if somebody comes along and they're saying the complete opposite, saying that you're full of nonsense, the fights over that can get very bitter. And I, I, if... If burning at the stake were still allowed, I think sometimes that would happen still in <laughs> science because people just hit the roof and they right. they tend to um, back into corners. They they kind right. of double down, so it, it reaches a point where both sides are basically name calling, and it seems like they're talking past each other, uh, which is unfortunate. But again, it's just human psychology the way this happens, and so. You, it reaches a point where um, they can't see anything good in the opposite side. It's it's like everything your intellectual opponent is saying has to be awful. Starting to sound a little bit like politics. For the moment, tell us where people can get a hold of your books. Um, well, okay, so currently it's published in the U.K., so if you happen to be listening in the U.K., maybe on the Internet, then it's easy. In bookstores, online, it's published by Macmillan. You can go to panmacmillan.com. Unfortunately, in America, 
Right now, it's a little more difficult. There is no American edition, but you can buy a print copy from Amazon. So that's where you have to go to get it. All right. And you've got other books as well. Um, yeah. Are they available in the United States? Yes. The, all the other ones are available in the U.S. Uh, uh, Elephants on Acid, Electrified Sheep. Those, those, those are my weird science titles. Um, Alex, you look at some things, uh, not only that are uh, contemporary, but you also look at uh, fringe and unorthodox theories that actually have uh, since been proven to be accurate or correct, right? That's part of the book. Yeah, because I, I wanted to show that, um, you know, how, how much science does actually depend on unorthodox theories uh, for its advancement. And in a way, you, you could argue that um, unorthodox fringe theories are the really the lifeblood of science, because this is where the, the new ideas tend to come from. And so that's why it, it's somewhat ironic that there's such hostility in science towards uh, the kind of the current crop of crazy ideas out there, because without the crazy ideas in the past, um, you know, where, you, where would science be? And uh, that begs the question, if, you know, these crazy ideas in the past were vindicated, then really how crazy are the ones that are, you know, being swept under the rug today? And that, that's uh, kind of one of the bigger issues I want to to kind of bring to the fore in in the book. Several of your uh, the theories that you talk about in the book seem to be related to the origin of the human species. Uh, one of them we kind of already talked about hallucinogenic drugs uh, making us human. What about this idea that we may have descended from aquatic apes? Yeah, this is, uh, I, I would say, this is probably uh, the most popular fringe theory um, in science. It's got a very large following. There's been several uh, BBC documentaries about I know David Attenborough, who's a very well-respected science, is actually a fan of this theory. The, um, the basic idea is that... Uh, if you look at human evolution, um, you know, the mainstream says, well, our bodies, the, the way we changed from kind of chimp-like creatures into humans is because of the interaction with the African landscape. And uh, you, the proponents of the aquatic ape theory say, well, well hang on. So, you know, there's things that don't seem to quite make sense about this. There's, uh, you know, what, why did we start walking upright. And why, why did we lose our fur? And so it was actually a, a marine biologist who back in the, Alistair Hardy, back in the 60s, he said, you know, if you start with a different assumption that maybe our ancestors didn't spend all their time on, you know, the African savannah, maybe they kind of took an evolutionary detour into the water, which isn't an unknown thing to happen in uh, among animals, we know that certain animals like uh, whales and dolphins actually used to be terrestrial, and their ancestors moved into the ocean. And, and you know, they he made the case that if you start with this other assumption, then uh, a lot of these mysteries of why we've ended up with our current form, you know, they you start to they kind of. Uh, other arguments start to make sense. For instance, why did we walk upright? Well, perhaps because, 
you know, uh, when chimps wade into water, they naturally stand upright. So if they're kind of looking for marine resources, it would be a huge selective advantage for creatures to stand upright. And again, you know, uh, in the water, maybe we lost our fur because it helps to swim in the water. And uh, you can kind of go through this whole list of these odd traits that humans have that don't necessarily make a lot of sense if we were always on land. At least this is the argument of the aquatic ape proponents. But they do make sense if at some point, maybe seven to five million years ago, our ancestors were actually living as kind of semi-aquatic creatures, kind of making, uh, feeding themselves from marine resources. This is one that I'm 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 a little confused about. This idea that Jesus was really Julius Caesar. Are we saying that <laughs> is the is the idea here that the historical figure that we have come to know as Jesus is just a telling of Julius Caesar, or are you saying that there was some kind of um, you know uh, misidentification? Okay, well it's not me. No, I, it's not I, you, I'm, right? Yeah, it's I not just, you explain the theory. So I, I'm not necessarily endorsing any of these theories. The idea with this one, that Jesus was Julius Caesar, uh, is that uh, Julius Caesar was actually worshipped as a god in the Roman Empire. So when, when he was killed, uh, the uh, Roman Empire endorsed an imperial cult about him, and the official story became that he rose up into heaven, and so even though he had been murdered, he kind of, by ascending into heaven, he, uh, you know, vanquished his enemies in that sense. And so the theory is, is that when you start to look at Jesus versus Julius Caesar, a lot of strange similarities start to crop up. And so maybe uh, the story of Jesus was actually an attempt to kind of transpose the Julius Caesar story into a Jewish setting, because maybe they were trying to popularize the, uh, the cult of Julius Caesar in Judea, and somehow things got mixed up, and they retold the story slightly, and so the Julius Caesar story about how Julius Caesar rose into heaven, et cetera, et cetera, became the Christian story. That's, that's the basic idea of that theory. We have um, a little less than 10 minutes here, and there are so many of these ideas uh, that you uh, presented in the book. Were there any that you didn't include because maybe you felt they were too controversial? Um, well, I, I went ahead and included the Julius <laughs> Caesar Caesar, you know, Jesus Julius Caesar, and that, that perhaps is the most controversial. Uh, so I would say, no, I can't really think. And also... Um, I perhaps I should have uh, held back a bit more, but my tendency is is that well, you know, um, there's no harm in discussing it. I don't need to endorse these, but you know, just air the argument, and people can decide how they want. Another controversial one I I put in there was this theory that perhaps humans descended from a pig chimp hybrid, and that just you know 
outrages people for somewhat obvious reasons, but there is a guy at the University of Georgia who has developed a whole theory that maybe because, you know, our skin is somewhat similar to pigs, and so he has this theory that seven million or so years ago, maybe there was a mating event, and that's how we acquired all these kind of peculiar, unchimp-like characteristics that we have. Well, we do know there are uh, very um, close DNA similarities, um, so maybe there's something to that. Do these? Did you apply any type of um, litmus test to these as you were deciding whether to include them or not? Uh, in the form of they were close to being um, uh, maybe on the edge of something that might be accepted by science, or did you not concern yourself with that? Uh, what, what I wanted is um, to have people who were, were actually kind of um, fully credited. They didn't have to be scientists. Most of them are fully credited scientists. But, you know, I, I wanted people who were clearly knowledgeable about the subject so they couldn't just be dismissed as being ignorant. Uh, that, that was one of my, my main concerns because there are, you know, you can find – strange theories that people come up with, um, and it's not clear that they really uh, mastered the scientific literature or even looked at it at all, and, and to me that was maybe too easy to dismiss. So I wanted people who clearly uh, often were top of their professions, uh, and they come up with stuff that their colleagues think is just nuts, and to me that, that seemed more interesting, so they couldn't be as easily swept under the rug. I think this is probably a good one uh, to be the final example of what you've got in the book there. But what about this notion that humanity is getting dumber? I think in some ways humanity is getting less informed, but I don't know about dumber. But what's this one? Okay, this this is one I will go on record that I'm very tempted to actually believe in. And because there there is somewhat compelling evidence for it, the, uh, around the turn of the 21st century, um, Paleoanthropod people studying human bones, human skeletons, they, they realize that if you compare the size of the human skull over uh, throughout history, our ancestors back 20,000 years ago actually had significantly larger brains than we do now. And this, this is not a fact that is um, disputed or controversial in science. This is fully accepted. The question is why have our brains as a species shrunk by almost 10% in the last 20,000 years. Uh, and when you say that may not sound a lot, but it's about the size of tennis ball of brain that our species has lost in the last 20,000 years. So the obvious question is why has this happened? One answer, perhaps the obvious answer, is because we're dumber you know how can how can as a species we have lost that much brain and yet still be as smart as they were back then um and the argument goes that the reason our brains have started to shrink is because of the adoption of agriculture and basically that allowed communities to develop um essentially it, pro it protected the human species from uh, the severity of selective evolution. So with agriculture, uh, we, we essentially had a safety net. And so uh, the dumb people, to put it harshly, weren't, uh, weren't dying anymore, which means that, uh, 
you know, we we started to essentially get dumber. There, there's also an argument from genetics, uh, again, pinpoints agriculture and says that the intellect is a very fragile, hard thing to maintain because so many genes uh, go into it, and so it's um, without the selective pressures uh, that existed before agriculture that inevitably mutations are going to start building up and the intelligence is going to suffer. You um, is is the book you said it's it's it can be purchased through Amazon, but it's it's uh, being published in the UK. Will it be more widely available here in the United States at some point? Uh, I hope, but right right now I, I I'm not sure. I you know I I can only hope. Yeah, but but people can get it on Amazon. What do you? They what, can get it on yeah. What's next on your list? You you've got uh, a lot of projects, a lot of irons in the fire. What's next? Uh, I'm thinking, well, I, I've done now three books in a row about weird science, so I'm thinking of going back to a book about hoaxes. That's my plan. Are there any uh, modern-day hoaxes uh, that uh, have captured your attention? Uh, my, um, uh, let me... Uh, I didn't mean to put you on the uh, spot there. Yeah. Um, nothing's really, you know, I'm sure there are. Nothing's really come into mind immediately because uh, I, I tend to focus more on the historical stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, sorry, I'm not no, kind of okay. blanking right now. That's okay. I caught you off guard with the question. But, um, you know, in the in the age of uh, Facebook-dominated uh, uh, information, I guess is what we call it, or even Google-dominated information, um, you know, there's a lot of things flowing in front of people's eyes, and I would say a darn good percentage of it uh, may not necessarily be uh, hoaxes as much as it's just disinformation, but there's a lot out there. Yeah, it's, it's one of the ironies of the Internet is that the Internet was supposed to, you know, be this great tool for educating people and putting information at their fingertips. But what we always learn is that the more information you have, the more misinformation you have also. So the two seem to go hand in hand. So that forces people to be kind of more critical consumers of information it puts all the the burden on you as the individual reader to to have to figure out what's true alex has been a really really fascinating time you have uh, a couple of websites is, is there one for the museum specifically or is that hoaxes.org hoaxes.org is the uh, the museum okay so you've got hoaxes.org and also weird weirduniverse.net anything else you want to send people to uh that that's it those are the two of them Thank you so much for being here again. Great conversation, a lot of fun. I appreciate your time. Okay, thanks for having me. Don't forget, a lot of great things coming up on uh, the weekend of October 18th and 20th in Rochester, New York. Scaricon will be there. A lot of great celebrities will be on hand, panel discussions, a whole film festival. About 50 never-before-seen new films will be have been submitted into the festival. Actually, many more than that have been submitted. About 50 will be shown. Uh, there will be great vendors, especially if you're doing some Halloween shopping. Hotel rates are, uh, there's a special group rate for anybody attending uh, Scaricon. Just go to the website, Scaricon.com. Very, very easy to get information. Uh, some of the things that you will be able to see is the Phantasm cast reunion. Remember the movie Phantasm? I love that film. You like that one, right? Oh, it's great. Yeah, Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, 1979. It's the 40th anniversary of that film. The director, writer, plus uh, four of the cast members, original cast members, will be there. There's also going to be a reunion. I don't know if you call it a reunion because it hasn't been that long, but the movie Terrifier, which is a Netflix 
film mm-hmm. uh, about uh, with an evil clown in it, kind of on the heels of it. But I think it was actually a better villain than Pennywise, at least in the most recent version. I don't know. Art the Clown? Art the Clown, yeah. Oh, and um, and and karaoke. Art the Clown did the most amazing karaoke. Yeah, at the Saturday night party at Scaricon, there will be a karaoke performance <laughs> by uh, David Howard Thornton, who played Art the Clown. Anyway, a great weekend ahead. Uh, check it out, Scaricon.com. Looking ahead to what we've got on the program coming up tomorrow night, we will be talking to Jock Doubleday. You say Jock is a... A Scottish name? That's that's what he said. Scottish name. Jock Doubleday uh, will be talking about the Bosnian pyramids and his assertion that the earth was terraformed and built by ancients. That's That seems to be um, one of these theories that is getting more play. Right. I mean, kind of hot on the heels of tonight's topic. Yeah, um, for sure. For sure. I mean, the, the Ancient Aliens program is one of the uh, most watched shows on uh, at least History Channel, if not all of cable. Um, so... You know, good topic to be talking about tomorrow night. Yeah. And then we look ahead to Monday of next week. Dr. Ming-Chi will be here to talk about his book, Angels of Rainbow Bridge, Life After Transition, which is designed and written to help ease the pain of losing a pet. So a lot of great stuff coming up on Beyond Reality Radio. Thanks for being here tonight, and we will see you tomorrow night. Have a great night, everybody. Beyond Reality Radio is hosted by Jason Hawes and J.V. Johnson and produced by Alexandria Johnson and Slick Eddie Edwards for Intercom Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is distributed by Westwood One Radio Networks. Stop by our Facebook page and say hello. Follow the hosts on Facebook as well. For Jason Hawes, follow at JasonHawes.Taps. For J.V. Johnson, follow at JVJParanormal. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Radio or you have a suggestion for a guest, contact Slick Eddie Edwards at SlickEddieEdwards at gmail.com. Be sure to visit our chat room as well at beyondrealityradio.com. Thanks for listening.